been steeping in my feelings I've been doing way too much I've been running around in circles Trying to get back in touch With who I was before Someone first tried to tell me emotions and feelings and conversations about how we show up in relationships of all kind. Today, we are kicking off a mini series on Palestine with the first episode talking to academic and just all around extraordinary human Zoe Samudzi about the context and history of this genocide and other genocides and other acts of violence committed by the state of Israel that have been U.S. funded and supported for decades. And this is not as much of a feelingsy conversation as usual. It's more grounded in, you know, research and history and facts, not that all of the things we talk about in Feeling Soup aren't grounded in that, but this is just a little more logistical and wordy than usual. We do get into some feelings, but for the most part, we're focusing on the context and the history so that we can get into slightly more feelingsy topics surrounding Palestine in future weeks. We will have guests, including Jessica Dixon, who is an incredible Enneagram uh, coach, I suppose, an anti-racism coach um, and more. So please stay tuned for that. But today we have a conversation with Zoe, and I hope that you get a lot out of this, no matter who you are, that you learn something and that you open your heart and mind to really listening and learning. Uh, I'm going to let Zoe introduce herself and tell you a little bit about um, what Zoe does for work, what what Zoe has to say and what we're going to talk about today, and then we will get into the nitty gritty. Yeah, um, excited to, to talk about the, well, excited is the wrong word, but I'm happy to, <laughs> I'm happy to talk to you. Um, I guess I would describe myself, I work in academia um, I study, I'm a sociologist by training. Um, I study German colonialism and genocide, but not the Shoah. Um, so I have a lot of feelings about kind of memory and, 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 and mass violence that in, includes and that Germany is a part of, but like the the way that Germany has kind of responded to it has metastasized into something completely horrible, which we'll get into uh, just now. Um, 
but my area is kind of in visual studies or has become about visual studies. So I think a lot about kind of images of violence and the politics of the image um, as, as kind of my, one of my primary concerns and engagements of, of genocide and mass violence. And in addition to that, um, I am a writer, um, a kind of art critic, and I am an associate editor at a magazine called Parapraxis, which is a magazine of psychoanalysis. Amazing. Extremely accomplished. Always have a lot of incredible things to say. Um, always respect your work. So it's great to talk to you about this. Also, as someone who is uh, part German and Jewish and also has like diasporic family in the East and also has family affected by this going on the genocide and also is a I'm a holocaust historian like just a lot of things converging <laughs> here um so also excited is not the right word but happy to talk to someone else who like understands with all of all of the layered complexities and nuances um so we uh we're just gonna we're just gonna get into it um and we are going to take advantage of Zoe's expertise um, in all of these areas, um, to talk about kind of some of the conversations that are being left out in the social media discourse, um, around, uh, this genocide. Um, my first question is to start, um, what is, um, your personal or professional connection to the U.S. sponsored Israeli genocide of Palestinians? I mean, I think I would probably say that my most important connection is the fact that I'm an American taxpayer. Um, and so my, you know, tax money that should be going to something useful um, is going to things that are not so useful, including an excess of military, military spending um, and billions of dollars per annum to the state of Israel. Um, but additionally, I guess I would say there are a couple of personal points. Um, I think my first introduction to Palestine or the idea that there was any kind of anything happening um, was when I was, I think, 13, I think, is when Israel was at war with Lebanon. And I remember um, my parents are academics. My dad is a biologist. And so he was always very matter of fact and very frank. And so we were watching CNN together. And I was like, Daddy, what's Hezbollah? And he's like, okay, so Hezbollah is this, I mean, and he's very measured. And I, he's a good NPR progressive. He's very measured and was just like, Hezbollah is this political group, this party in Lebanon, da-da-da-da-da. And I remember him telling me that this is a proxy war. And I was like, a proxy war for what? And I remember the look on his face of a kind of like, oh boy, okay. Um, and so he's like, well, it's a proxy war for Israel and Palestine. And I was like, oh, well, what's, what's Israel and Palestine? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he's like, 
Like, we're all, this is a very large... But my dad is, again, like, since I was a little kid, he always talked to me like I was an adult. So he tells me. I mean, I don't think he uses word language that's especially radical, but he's very, like... Palestinians are people who are oppressed and this and this and this. So my primary takeaway was like, oh my gosh. So then all we need to do is like raise awareness about Palestine. And that's how we can help the Palestinian people. And we were talking about it not super long ago. And he was just like, there was a real sense of dread when you said that. Because I would then have to explain to you because my parents And this leads into my other kind of personal connection. My parents were both born in Rhodesia um, in the British uh, breakaway. Well, I guess then it was a British colony. But and so they might until I was much older, they were always very wary of not kind of telling me about colonialism and like racism. And my dad was like, we didn't want to like taint you too much. And and I was like, well, it would have been helpful to know. and so then my kind of personal connection is like, okay, so I'm, I, I was a part of Students for Justice in Palestine in college. I was, the, I was in um, Palestine Society in my master's in the UK. And then when I'm older, I come to learn that during the Zimbabwean liberation, during the liberation struggle against the Rhodesians, the Israeli government is arming the Rhodesians. So... And they're also, you know, obviously arming apartheid South Africa because by the 80s, um, Israel has alienated itself from all of these like newly independent African states because they're um, antagonizing the kind of oil producing Arab states. And so they're like, we have no more friends. And so they turn to the kind of despotic, autocratic um, fellow settler colonial states. Um, And so... I think that there was a sense of a real, a a shared understanding of kind of struggles for land and self-determination and and a decolonial politic that really kind of emerged out of realizing how many decolonial struggles Israel has been at least partially responsible for attempting to stymie. Um, yeah. And, and I think that there's a real reason why, you know, when we kind of look at kind of global national support, which isn't to say that we should believe anything that a lot of these world leaders have to say, um, (laughs) there's a reason why like a very large part of the kind of former third world, um, in this kind of like neutral political alignment, like actively and emphatically is supporting, you know, Palestinian struggle. Um, and so that was kind of the merger of something that I felt like a deep kind of political conviction towards. And then it was like, Oh, actually like all of these like groups of freedom fighters are exchanging these ideas and reading about each other and as they're training. And yeah, I don't know. There, there was just a kind of deeper sense of, of a shared anti-colonial, decolonial fate or responsibility or whatever with the Palestinians. Yeah. And, um, I guess that leads into pretty, 
perfectly the next question of, uh, can we get a snapshot of, um, can you, can you provide a basic history of the U.S. sponsored Israeli genocide of Palestinians to ground us in the context of this moment? Because this is very complicated and, and very long, as you have already noted. This is not a new thing. Um, and many people are just somehow finding out about it now and learning about it. And are like, there's a genocide going on now. Well, it, okay, it's been going on. So, what is what is the, the basic history and, and context that people need to know about this in in so many words? I think to to really start this off, I think that we have to not think about the state of Israel as kind of coming into being in 1948. Um, we have to think about the Balfour Declaration of 1917. Um, And it's not, you know, the United States is not simply responsible for what's going on. Like we have a lot of blame to lay on the United Kingdom um, because before Israel becomes an independent state, um, the area is part of the British mandate um, for Palestine. um, And the uh, foreign secretary writes a letter to Lord Rothschild, who's kind of a, a, lead, a major leader in the Jewish uh, British Jewish community, basically pledging that, you know, there will be the establishment of a national home um, for the Jewish people in Palestine. Um, so that's kind of the formation of why I think people call Palestine and a, a colonial project. Um, in addition, you know, you have Herzl, who is an important figure in the kind of Zionist movement, who writes a letter to Cecil Rhodes, which again, here's this personal connection. He writes a letter to the man who was responsible for colonizing most of Southern Africa to basically grant him permission to do in Asia Minor um, what Cecil Rhodes did in Africa. Um, understanding. It's a really good illustration of how all of these struggles are interconnected and are not separate at all. Totally. And when I heard about that, I was like, oh, like he wanted not permission, but he kind of wanted the, the, the stamp of approval from like the granddaddy of, of, of colonialism. (laughs) Um, The the zaddy of colonialism, if you will. Like, really, like, writing a letter to Cecil Rhodes and being like, hey, like, I really look up to you and I want to do what you did. And I think that there's a really kind of scary prospect to that. Um, I think something else that's really important is the fact that, like, there were a number of locations where they considered placing what would become Israel. Like, they thought about putting it in um, East Africa which means, you know, Africans would have been, if not Palestinians, you know, it would have been some other people that are having to kind of stave off this colonial project, but they decided because of the kind of historical um, significance of the location, it would be there. Okay. So 1917, the Balfour Declaration. Um, 1948, um, the kind of Arab-Israeli war, um, concludes, culminates in Israeli independence. And a part of that war is what we call, or what not we call, rather what Palestinians describe as the Nakba, um, you know, which is the fact that, you know, 
the Israeli state was established through the kind of mass forced displacement and ethnic cleansing and destruction of Palestinian villages um, and homes. And, and, and that is a major part of the origin of the massive Palestinian diaspora today. Um, and one of the most catastrophic parts of the Nakba, the catastrophe is the fact that Palestinians are not able to return to the homes from which they have been displaced. Um, and rather than that displacement stopping, the, the you know there is this kind of ongoing displacement happening um, in the West Bank with the kind of construction of settlements and the, and the destruction of agricultural of Palestinian agriculture. Um, another important year is 1967, um, which is the the the, the Six Day War, and. The Six-Day War is a kind of coalition of Arab states um, fighting against uh, the Israeli government. And it's um, what ends up, what happens from, what results from the Six-Day War is the kind of acquisition of a number of different parts of what constitute Palestine. Um, so you have the Golan Heights is occupied and captured from Syria. The West Bank, which includes Jerusalem, is captured from Jordan and the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula are captured from Egypt. Um, so it is in the Six-Day War that a major part of the kind of geography um, of, of so-called Israel-Palestine is formed. Um, since this is not a comprehensive history lesson, we are going to skip about 30 years <laughs> to the Oslo Accords. Um, yeah, we would, be, we would be here for yeah. 20... 20 years if we went through everything. Um, But the Oslo Accords are really important. Um, It was the first kind of face-to-face agreement, treaty, whatever, between the Israeli government and the Palestine Liberation um, Organization, uh, led then by Yasser Arafat. Um, And with the Oslo Accord, this leads to the creation of Palestinian... um, self-government. So this is the creation of the Palestinian authority. Um, and this would also call for, um, the withdrawal of, of the IDF from Gaza and from the West bank. Um, but basically the Oslo accords are, um, they end up being kind of disastrous. Basically it's just like they end up being disastrous because it, it leads to a kind of set of political compromises um, on behalf of the Palestinians and, you know, their compromises that the Palestinians make, um, agreements that are supposed to be upheld by both sides and they're absolutely not upheld, um, by the Israeli government. Um, this is, I think that's a really, that's a really important (laughs) sticking point. Yeah. A really important sticking point is the fact that like, I mean, I mean, I've, I've missed in all of this, the two intifadas, but, um, there have been so many, I think that what's the most important part of this is like, there have been so many times when Palestinians have been willing to attempt to, to, to negotiate, um, really attempting to make peace. Um, and each time the Israeli government has demonstrated a refusal to do so. I mean, I think the settlements are one really big part of this, for example, that like time and time again, the internet, the international legal humanitarian organs are like 
checkpoints, not checkpoints, although checkpoints, um, but settlements are illegal. Like it's a violation of the Geneva Convention to occupy land and then transfer a population of the occupying um, nation onto um, the land of the occupied. Um, and that is effectively what settlements are. It's just the annexation of land and the transferring of, of, of right. Israeli citizens onto the land. Um, and not that we're necessarily measuring things by legality because no, the abolition no, 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 no. But if we're thinking about like, just the fact of, yeah. yeah, if we're thinking about like the fact of, of, of outside, being outside of an agreement. Yeah. If we're just, if we're thinking about just treaties, right. We showed up to the negotiating table, we've made a set of promises and time and time and time and time and time and time again, they're voided. Um, by the, by the, I mean, I would argue like by the kind of antagonizing significantly more powerful body. Um, so what does that actually mean for the prospect of peace, right? Like for the longest time, everyone was like two state solution, two state solution. But if there's a kind of continuous violation of the territorial integrity of Palestine, of Palestine, where we've seen these maps of the area kind of constantly shrinking, you know, if there's not a recognition of Palestinian political sovereignty, how can there be two states? Right. And what does your word actually mean if it yeah. if, if there's no integrity there? And I think and this is something that's, you know, a part of the discourse with Hamas is like. This is not even like a spicy conspiratorial take, like even Haaretz is, is, is reporting this, but basically, um, and Tarek Bakoni is a really phenomenal um, source in writing about the politics of Hamas. But basically, Prime Minister Netanyahu funds the kind of expansion of Hamas because he wants there to be a counter to the Palestinian Authority that undermines the legitimacy of the Palestinian Authority by his account so that Israel does not have to negotiate with the Palestinians ever again. Um, and so like not, I, I, I think that Netanyahu's a pretty smart guy. He's a, he's a pretty strategic guy. Um, I would have to believe that he would have known that when you fund a group and just kind of leave them be, um, that they're going to grow in, 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 in power. Um, and I think that a confrontation like this, was a kind of part of his long game um, in, in there being some reason to, to, to altogether destroy uh, uh, Gaza under the guise of trying to eliminate the threat that's posed by Hamas. And I think that the kind of, and this is not the first time either that, the, you know, this is how it's like, they've been bombed many, many times. It's like they're, they, they treat it like, mowing the lawn yeah mowing the grass that's the that's the kind of offensive defense or defensive offense and and I think that the kind of response that we've seen after the the attack on October 7th um of just a kind of indiscriminate destruction of of Gaza of hospitals of 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 places where refugees are taking shelter of apartment buildings in the middle of the night. Um, it just, it doesn't feel because it's not right. Any kind of proportionate response. And we've heard the, the national, the defense minister and all of them talking about human animals. I was just reading something in the Jerusalem post, um, where, uh, what was his name? Gallant, 
the defense minister said, quote, this war needs to be the last campaign in Gaza for the simple reason that after this Hamas will not exist. It will take a month, two months, three, but in the end there will be no Hamas. And we obviously know that through the kind of long existing campaign of, of, of collective punishment, right, of making all Palestinians responsible for any given single crime or infraction or moment of insurgency, um, that Hamas is metonymic for the entirety of Gaza and for all of the people yeah. in Gaza. Um, and as Raz Siegel... Right, like they're and, punishing children. Yeah. You know... Like uh, that's all you have to look at at the end of the day and that they're bombing hospitals for what? You know, or the argument that, you know, they bombed a church because there were Hamas tunnels underneath, but then they're like, actually the Islamic state, I just, it, it's, it's been, but then it's also like people will die and then funerals will get bombed. And it's, it, it just, it just seems like a kind of, I can't even say a cycle of vengeance because it's hardly cyclical, right? Um, when there's such a kind of asymmetry like this. And I think what feels really anxiety inducing is the prospect of compelling all of these Palestinians to 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 to, to be to leave um, Gaza um, because it's also been a kind of territorial desire to have all Palestinians evacuate into Egypt, um, and it's yeah, it, I don't know how useful that was as a history, but it all just feels incredibly kind of horrific and, and, and devastating to, to witness. Yeah. And, and okay. So something that I'm seeing that a lot of people are seeing something that's just happening is, is many people are really not very informed about this. I think that it's really important for as many people as possible to be speaking out. I think it's also very important to not, blabber opinions until you have been a little more informed. I think it's great to just say free Palestine or I support this or whatever, know the basics. You can say whatever, but a lot of people are arguing a lot online, participating in discourse, talking about things that they don't know about. So, you know, a lot of people are only getting their information from social media posts. They're, they're, they're not trained researchers or writers or academics or or investigative journalists they don't know how to tell what's true and what's not they're getting information from infographics they're getting information from friends posting things on instagram stories that they don't know about either um what which is to say what what recommended reading would you say people could start with if they want to ground themselves in more context surrounding this and know the basics of what they're talking about in order to share more informed opinions and maybe, you know, what, what have you been reading as well? So there's a few things. I think I read or I have read, I don't read as much of this anymore, but I think the kind of political project and the kind of political affect and emotion um, is really well summarized in poetry. Um, Palestinians are like notoriously phenomenal poets. Um, yeah, absolutely. I have several friends who are Palestinian poets and it's, in, it's incredible. I mean, I've been sobbing about it all month. Yeah. I, I think that like, 
the kind of like classic, classic poet that talks a lot about kind of exile and loss and longing and land is Mahmoud Darwish. Um, but yeah, I hope, I hope attached to this, there can be some names of poets cause I'm not going to get them off the top of my head. But I, I think that was really not an introduction, but I think and it allowed me to kind of delve deeper into the kind of collective cultural psyche that such an important part of the kind of ethos of resistance and kind of steadfastness is about a grief that is kind of constantly being transformed into some kind of like collectivized ability to sit and share and move forward at the same time. Um, as far as like a really kind of comprehensive take, it's, it's hard to say like, what's the book you should read. Um, I don't even think it's that. It's just like, you know, what, what, you know, what books, what podcasts, what articles, what social media, uh, channels, what audio books, what talks online, what, YouTube videos, what, what are, what are some different, you know, resources that people can kind of digest, so to speak, so that they can have, so that they can be grounded in more context. Because the thing that I, and I've read, I've read dozens, if not a hundred books on all of this, and I still don't feel, and I have family, you know, over there, and I still don't feel, and I'm, and I'm a journalist who, who researches all, all this stuff all the time and I still don't feel that I am as informed as I could be and in order to you know speak out about things and I spend most of my time sharing other people's perspectives and thoughts and research and writing most of the time and I think that we could all just get better at consuming a lot of of perspective before blathering our own stuff so it's like you know I see a lot of people sharing uninformed stuff and and I think that People, I think people hopefully are hungry for digesting real information and truth. And so, you know, what are, what are some places they can look for that? Um, I mean, I oh, and, and poetry, you're right too. Poetry. I love that you mentioned poetry because it's like so often when we talk about this stuff and when we think about this all this stuff I say genocide (laughs) um genocide horrors the violence is we think about kind of more academic stuff more research-based things and like poetry and art and music and and creative endeavors are so important as well to to take in in order to understand the context of moments like this and periods of history like this with genocide and violence Mm -hmm. I mean, I was also about to say that I'm a very dry and stuffy academic, and so that also tends (laughs) to be my primary mode of engagement. Um, I think a book that it seems like a lot of people have really recommended, and I've read parts of it, and it's really good, um, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine um, by Rashid Khalidi. Yeah. I also like um, Palestine, It is Something Colonial by Hatem Bazian, um, which is actually taken from the kind of quote from the letter that Herzl wrote to Cecil Rhodes, basically like saying, yeah, this is a colonial project. Um, 
I was really intrigued to encounter the new historians. Um, and the new historians are actually a group of Israeli historians that are kind of creating historiogra- historiographies about Israel that challenge kind of Zionist hegemony. Um, and so the two that I have read the most are Ilan Pape and um, Avi Shleim. Um, and then I think in terms of kind of news, like keeping a little bit up to date with what's going on, I cannot recommend electronic intifada or electric, electronic, electric, electronic intifada. Um, I think they're really wonderful. Um, I have a friend, uh, shout out to Nara Barrows Friedman who writes, um, and does a lot of really great podcasting for them. She's phenomenal. Um, and I mentioned Tarek Bakoni, I think Al Shabaka, it's like a policy think tank. Um, and I've learned a lot about a lot of different aspects of, from the Palestinian authority and participate and, and the PA's complicity in the kind of infrastructure of apartheid in the West bank to Hamas, to analyses of the Oslo accords and, and all of that. Um, I think that they're great as well. Uh, and another question that that leads into is, um, so much of what we're seeing online right now with discourse is people just being really in their feelings. They're not really sharing information from, and this is true of any discourse really, um, but they're not really sharing, people are not really sharing information from a place of information they're sharing it from a place of of like emotion um you know so much of the discourse is based in emotion and people's emotions about their what they think of zionism and what they think of what they think anti-semitism is and and what they think is going on and you know whatever it's just it's all tied up in ego um how have you personally witnessed people's feelings informing how they're speaking about this genocide um, in the in you know the current moment? I guess because we could talk about so so many moments that that this has been going on, but it's it's been interesting to to see people talking about grief um, mm-hmm. and. And while I think that that's a perfectly well-reasoned or like a perfectly reasonable place for that, for, for, for your kind of politics to emerge, um, I think the problem with talk, not the problem, um, what we consistently run into in talking about grief and Israel is that the conversation kind of consistently gets rooted through grief around the Shoah. Um, And that becomes really difficult to engage, not because people shouldn't feel it, um, quite the contrary. Um, It's because of the way that the kind of political and cultural and affective afterlife of the Nazi Holocaust has kind of structured the entirety of the kind of moral universe 
of um, the Euro-American world after World War II. So what happens when that is the grief that is foregrounded and that's the grief that we all have to kind of organize ourselves around, it necessarily means that there's a hierarchy of grief. And it necessarily means that there's a hierarchy of grief that often kind of occludes the grief that other people are experiencing, particularly people that have literally been under siege. It centers, it centers ego, it centers self, it centers, it it compares. It's not just ego and self, right? I think it centers ego and self, but zooming out, it also centers like a very particular kind of, 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 of political project. Yeah. Um, it, it centers a, a kind of like, or, or it, it is intimately related to kind of like a Western guilt of either actively participating in or watching yep. Yep. the Nazi yep. genocide. And then Elon Pape writes about this often is it's like a big, a big driver for, you know, Western countries support of the creation of Israel, he says, is the fact that no one wanted to reabsorb all of these Jewish people who had been displaced and made Mm. refugees within Europe. So he talks about the creation of Israel as this kind of act of anti-Semitism. And yet when we kind of are talking about grief and, and so much of the kind of articulation of grief that I've seen around what happened on October 7th is this kind of like constant iteration of like the largest loss of Jewish life since the Holocaust as though to position Hamas akin to Nazis, which in my opinion is a real, um, it really recalls the kind of, um, uh, I would argue this is a kind of form of Holocaust denial, but this idea that the Mufti of Jerusalem was the person who told Adolf Hitler to do the Holocaust. And that's something Netanyahu has mentioned a number of times so as to really, like, emphasize this inherent anti-Semitism of Muslims, um, Uh of of Arabs. Um, And that's something Uh that we see also in, for example, the German government saying there are a lot of people coming to Germany, or the chancellor, rather, coming to Germany, and a lot of people who are coming from these Arab countries harbor anti-Semitic views. And because Germany is so unwilling to kind of confront its own enduring racism, yeah. anti-Semitism, fascism, which we're seeing in the rise of the, 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 the AFD, um, the German chancellor in part because of this desire to curb anti-Semitism in Germany, um, is trying to cut the ability for people, particularly from like Arab countries to immigrate to Germany. Um, which is specifically, you know, not about this kind of vague security. It's specifically about these like Islamophobic Orientalist panics. Um, and so it's like people depoliticize feelings as though they don't have these like political genealogies, but the ways that they're talking about grief and the ways that they're talking about feelings in justification of a colonial project or in justification of destroying Gaza. um, Yeah. 
there's this real inability, refusal, lack of knowledge, whatever, that your feelings are not just feelings that you have and that sit inside your body. Your feelings are connected to this larger constellation of ideas, of violence, of colonial, you know, of anti, you know, anti-Semitic ideas coming from folks. And and also, if we look at it, a lot of white people's feelings are rooted in white, white supremacy. And kind of the kind of constancy of like, I mean, if you look in every settler colony that has had a liberation struggle, if you look at Angola, um, Rhodesia, South Africa, one of the most important, one of the things that kind of happens shortly before the, the, the liberation war inevitably begins is a real intensification of like settler anxiety and a sense of feeling yeah. unsafe. Um, and yep. that's a big part of the kind of Israeli identity and justification for its kind of militarism is the kind of idea yeah. of a hostile neighborhood surrounded by Arabs. Um, and it feels important to note that that was a point of like real affection and similarity between apartheid leaders in South Africa, um, mm-hmm. and the Israeli government in the seventies. Like you had the apartheid leaders mm-hmm. being like, we have blacks, you have Arabs, Let's yeah. work together. Yeah. Um, so I just think that like what gets frustrating when people talk about feelings is that people talk about feelings as though feelings are not still also political articulations for which you have to be accountable. If I say, you know, I want to kill X, Y, Z, and that's just what I feel <laughs> or like, <laughs> yeah. I feel like because the world is, doesn't care about Jews, like maybe Gaza deserve, maybe they deserve to have their lights cut off or whatever. Like what Sarah Silverman has been posting on, 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 it's just like, I just find it crazy. If I can just have a side, I just find it really wild that someone who um, has done blackface, I think more than once has anything to say about racism, but yeah, I digress. Also, also it's like, how are you, what, what you were saying before is it's like, how are you using your feelings to justify violence against other people? Like, I mean, it's, and it's like, I won't get into a whole thing because I know you have to go soon and this could be th- three hours, but it's like, you know, it digs into and intersects with, you know, like white tears and how that begets violence against black people and imprisonment and all, all of these, like all, all of these different things and how, whose feelings get centered and whose feelings get megaphoned and whose, like whose, I don't know, just whose feelings are seen as important and prioritized literally cause ripple effects of violence for more marginalized people. Totally. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I and I think that, like, none of this is to say that, again, people shouldn't grieve or mourn or be terrified by what happened, but, but you know, by the, the, the attacks that Hamas committed on, the, on, on October 7th. Absolutely not. And also, um, it, it, it feels... Convenient and opportunistic... Um, yeah, that this is kind of the first time that a lot of people are talking about the safety of Israeli yeah. civilians when in fact, 
the entire Zionist settler colonial project, which conscripts, in theory, every single Israeli citizen into the military, functionally understands Israelis as being expendable. Yeah, Um, Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also incredibly important to look at the fact that um, the Israeli government is pretty disinterested in getting back any of the hostages. And in fact, a number of the families have been protesting against the government for abandoning them at the same time that they are using the, the deaths from the attack on the seventh and the, and the existence of hostages in Gaza, um, as, you know, as justification for destroying Gaza and, and it just, it kind of, it just produces this like really fucked up cyclical logic that doesn't, bring us any closer to any kind of peace that anyone purports to want. But in fact, you know, the absence of this kind of bombing campaign wasn't peace. It was just a kind of quiet people, a kind of quiet, enduring occupation, siege, suffocation versus the kind of acceleration of these intense bombing campaigns. And so Often when people are calling for this deeply depoliticized ceasefire, they want to return to the state of normalcy in which, mm-hmm. you know, Gazans are tamped down and suppressed and Palestinians and the West Bank are kept quiet and the lands are separated um, as opposed to understanding the kinds of conditions that would actually allow for a sustained peace, mm-hmm. um, which are like recognitions of kind of sovereignty um, allowing people to move, allowing people to see their family, um, not stealing people's homes and dispossessing them of their properties and burning down olive trees and all of this, right? Um, to sustain a peace is to, to, to absent the kind of colonial violence that produces these everyday brutalities, as opposed to the spectacles of violence that we're seeing right now. And, right. And, yeah. and so much of it, so much of it seems to be that um, what was it, the phrase that people were using at some point, I guess maybe at the end, by the end of 2020, compassion fatigue around, like, all of the violence against black people. And, you know, people were saying, oh, we've been posting about this for months. We've been doing protests for months. Also, you haven't and been this idea about of, once. You posted once. <laughs> this idea of compassion fatigue and this idea of again, your feelings being centered and it being, oh, I can't go on social media. It's bad for my mental health because it's like war and genocide and and blah, 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 blah all the time. And it's like, I, I, I almost wish I, I don't wish, but I almost wish I could like understand and know what it is like to think that you're so, disconnected from and safe from this violence yourself that it's like an annoyance it's a grievance it's it's uh it's a barrier to you being able to enjoy memes on social media um because it's half a world away and what's gonna happen when that violence is in your neighborhood and it's happening to your loved ones and it's not just a thing that's like annoying you on social media and something that you need to like log off to protect your peace or protect your mental health or whatever. It's like, when do we develop that, that politic and that solidarity and that 
understanding of really right to comfort, I think, is is what it is. And this is what I talk about in another conversation with with someone else I'm, I'm talking about for these pieces on, on Palestine for the podcast is um, there is this almost, and this is especially true for, for white people, but I think it extends across, you know, other identities and backgrounds. Um, this idea of like right to comfort and that, you know, you should just get to be comfortable all the time on social media and that you should just get to be carefree and posting memes and sharing memes with your friends. And, um, that, that, that the only thing to do when you're uncomfortable or stressed is you just cut out all of the bad things that remind you of what the world is actually like. And it's like, what has to happen for you to re- like, does it have to happen in your neighborhood? Does it have to happen to someone in your family? D- does, does climate change have to, to touch you really, really personally, really specifically, you know, does, does racism or violence or whatever it is have to touch you really, really personally for you to get that this is, that life is uncomfortable and, and it's our like responsibility to ourselves and each other to learn how to navigate that in order to like be in solidarity with each other and to live in the kind of world that we would like where there isn't this violence. There's, there's like this, this, pushing off of, well, I don't want this to be part of my life because it's stressing me out. And, you know, it, it, it ruins my mental health. That's like so individualistic and so antithetical to like us actually living in a, in a world where, where it doesn't exist. I'm like going on a tangent now, but it's like, I, I know, you know, you know what I'm saying. I mean, COVID. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna touch it with a ten foot pole as a high risk person. You know, like <laughs> we would be able to live much more of the kind of lives that we want to live if we all just wore masks. Anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're preaching preaching to the choir. <laughs> that's, that's that's all I'll say. Um, I was going to say something and then I completely forgot what I was going to say, but it was around compassion fatigue. Anyway, it's fine. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I guess it, it must be nice to be fatigued for like having to think about something you've never had to think about before. I mean, one thing for me that was really striking and you know, of, of suddenly seeing folks who, you know, Zionists who I've never seen talk about, Uh um, anything all of a sudden being like, well, you know, you can't just talk about Palestine. There's civilians on both sides is like Uh this idea that like, it's really easy to support Palestinians. Like when they're down, like it's really easy to support like a, like a really unequivocally good and easy and simple victim but it's a lot more difficult this time. And, and this morning I, I listened to this man who was seven years old in 1948. And he kind of described being in Jerusalem during the Nakba, which was not something uh, that I emotionally prepared myself to listen to this morning. Uh, um, <laughs> but he was like, you know, what's different is that for once we started it. Um, and there is there is no real ability for most people or for many people to kind of contextualize 
this moment in the kind of long durée of Palestinian dispossession. It is simply, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, a particular level of comfort and understanding of the deep asymmetry between Israelis and Palestinians of Israelis mm-hmm. being untouchable because I think the Zionist myth that Israel propagates is that it will forever in perpetuity be able to contain any and all articulations and expressions of Palestinian resistance and that the Israeli fortressing project will come at no cost to Israelis. And that is absolutely not true. Yeah. And instead of recognizing that it is the kind of colonial violence that is the rot of all of this, Uh they're like, well, it's Hamas, even though Hamas is like 40 years younger than the, than, than the, than the Israeli, than the state, um, than the Israeli Uh state. Um, and, and so it's just this, it's this moment of, of people being forced to actually in an ideal world, you know, they would come out of it with a little bit more animosity towards the Israeli government, um, towards a government that has no consideration for any kind of life or any kind of equity and only has its kind of territorial aspirations that it's willing to sacrifice its own citizens to get. Um, And instead it kind of got turned on to Palestinian people as, and, and kind of rooted through Islamophobia and, and all of these other things instead of really thinking about like, What is the kind of like political structure um, that is is kind of like fixing all of this into place? And that's been really disappointing. And I guess what you've talked about, about a lack of information, but really also it's a kind of confirmation bias of their own ideas and their own desires Uh and anxieties. And instead of just being honest about what you're anxious about and Uh what you don't know, it's just like, well, maybe Palestinians don't deserve electricity yeah a lot of lot of big feelings coming up for for people um which leads me to my last question for you for now which is um when you're having really big feelings about something happening politically and there's discourse online and you're online how do you navigate your big feelings? Do you log off? How do you choose what you post and what you don't post? How how do you navigate having big feelings about things online? Okay, three things. <laughs> I don't argue. Uh-huh. Um especially if it's very obvious that someone is interacting in bad faith or quote unquote, yep. just asking questions. <laughs> um, Picking your brain. No. Um, I do the old fashioned thing and cry. I'm a crier. I like to cry. I need to cry a lot. Um, Same. <laughs> I've learned that. I don't get angry very easily, but if I'm not kind of, but I'm very irritable. So if I don't kind of constantly offload the feelings, 
I get really bitchy and like really mean in like a really profound way if I'm not like doing that constantly. Yeah. So I cry a lot. Um, and I guess I too only- have to log off fr- frequently during the day to cry. Otherwise, oh, I didn't say I that I logged like- off. I just said I cried. Uh, well- <laughs> I need you to. Crying, I need you to make it. Crying online with Zoe. I think maybe that's your podcast. We doom scroll and we cry where we put the phone down, take a lap and cry. But, you know. Um, And then the third thing is it's like, I guess one of the things that I feel like I can do well in my capacity is someone who is pretty decent at like synthesizing and communicating ideas. Although I hope that my uh, summary of important moments in Palestinian history was not indicative of that because that was appalling. But, um... I just try to share like tidbits of ideas and resources and putting things together that might be helpful to people. Um, and, and I just kind of put them in my story and I don't really care if folks like screenshot and share them or screenshot and keep them for themselves. But, um, I try to just make available the kinds of stuff that I'm reading and thinking about and, yeah, I, that feels useful, I guess. Maybe I'm not always on the mark, but at least I'm trying to do something or it's something that feels valuable. And I'm that translates into what I try to do in the classroom as a professor. So I, I feel like if we're going to be people with PhDs that spend all of our, or spend all this time in school, the very least we can do is like make some of this, I, some of this like, research or these ways of, of thinking about the world expansively like available as much as we can um, to people who are not in academia. So that's what I do with big feelings. Maybe number four, I call my mom, you know, and then cry to my mom. But yeah, but that's just, that's just number I've, one, which or number two, which is just crying. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't have, I don't have a, I don't have a mom to cry to, but I have, I have friends who get the angry tears at like 5am. <laughs> My mom is definitely like a surrogate and she is accepting new duck or always accepting ducklings. <laughs> so you can borrow mine if you need it. Great. I have, you know, I have so many, so many great friends who have allowed me to, to use their parents and, and people in their lives as surrogates and some of my friends are like parents but and I help like kind of co-parent like their children but they also I feel in a way through our friendship parent me (laughs) like who's parenting each other aren't we all in some ways parent we're reparenting ourselves parenting each other I appreciate it um thank you so much for for talking with me this was wonderful this was really helpful I think um this is really important for a lot of people to hear um, and the last thing is where can people find you online? Where can people read your work? Where can people learn more about your work and engage, engage with it online um, or elsewhere, not online as well. Yeah. I mean, fortunately I'm no longer on whatever that bird site was called or is presently called. <laughs> um, but I'm on X, Instagram. Twitter. Yeah. I'm on Instagram. My handle is baby wasu b a b y w a s u, um, and I have a like a like a website that has kind of the collection of of stuff that I've written. It's just zoe dot com. 
think that's the, the two most re reliable places. And where can people find your work not online? Is it, where is it published? Um, I co-authored a book with William C. Anderson called As Black as Resistance, and you can get that at AK Press or pirate it from LibGen. <laughs> Love it. Anarchy in practice. I mean, you know, our royalties are so tiny. I would rather someone read the book than, like, make a big deal out of going to buy it. So, you know. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, thank you so much for talking today. I think this is going to be hugely helpful for people who are willing and able to listen and hold space for it. Hopefully there will be some Zionists who do that as well. Um, just people of all backgrounds, I think, need to be listening to and engaging with um, everything going on with this genocide. Um, so thank you so much. And um, yeah. Thank you for, for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So we had a little bit of a hard time thinking up books and poets to suggest. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and suggest um, Salt Houses by Hal Elyan, um, uh, Speaking Palestine, New Palestinian Writing on Exile and Home, um, which was edited by Penny Johnson and Raja Shahade. Um, things You May Find Hidden in My Ear, Poems from Gaza by Mosab Abu Toha, who has been released. Um, those are just a few. You can find much more by Googling, um, but would highly, highly recommend those. And just for context, this episode was, um, the conversation was had and it was edited before the not even ceasefire, the pause was announced. Um, so we're speaking about this from a perspective from before that, um, but it doesn't really change the fact that we still need a ceasefire uh, and keep that in mind. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode of Feeling Soup. I would like to shout out uh, myself for writing the Feeling Soup theme song. Shout out Mal Bloom, uh, for his recording, beautiful rendition of the song that I wrote, and to Sarah Day Arts, who designed our logos and helped us pick our color palette. Uh, and we'll see you next time slurping with us on the pod, stewing and chewing on some hot takes.